You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast on an unseasonably warm Friday afternoon here in Hong Kong. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post, coming to you in a week where the news is dominated by the abrupt change in China's zero COVID policy, but also at the end of a week where news of China's geopolitical relationships is not dominated by the US or Europe. And it was an exciting week for people with an eye on history as well. On Tuesday this week, the US and Australian defence ministers announced they would invite the Japanese army to, quote, join the rotations in the city of Darwin in Australia's north alongside American Marines and the Australian Defence Force. Thanks to the international timeline, that news was reported on Wednesday, December 7, otherwise known in American history as... A date which will live in infamy. And Darwin is the northernmost city in Australia, which the Japanese Air Force bombed in February, April, June, July and November of 1942, exactly 80 years ago. Interestingly enough, today is December 9, and in 1941, that was the day that China declared war on Japan, Germany and Italy. But now, China is the stated enemy for the US and Australia, even though it's been just three weeks since China's President Xi Jinping met with US President Joe Biden and Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese at the G20, and US Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced he would be making a visit to Beijing early next year to reinstate the lines of communication. Elsewhere in geopolitics news, we saw China announce it had completed a new 750-kilometre section of pipeline six months early. This is going to connect the Yangtze River Delta in China's southeast all the way to Xinjiang, allowing Russian gas to flow that much faster into China's industrial heartland. But by the time you hear my voice, the news will be dominated by the first ever Arab-China summit in Riyadh, the capital city of Saudi Arabia. Xi Jinping is continuing his diplomatic resurgence after more than two years of life in Beijing under zero COVID with an historic meeting with 14 leaders from the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates and Iran. And don't you just wish you could be a fly on the wall to hear a room full of men talk about the nationwide protest in support of women's rights in Iran right now. You'll also hear more about Xi Jinping's broader agenda at these meetings and a bit of analysis of the cavalcade of energy and weapons agreements signed by China with Saudi Arabia this week. After we drop in on Saudi Arabia, we're going to catch up on the events in Arizona earlier this week. An historic photo opportunity at the opening of a new semiconductor fabrication plant between Joe Biden, the most senior figures from Taiwan's TSMC and the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook which ended up with some rather awkward comments about what US policies to limit China's access to semiconductors are doing to globalisation. And we'll pick up on the conclusion to last week's analysis about the nations of Europe getting pretty angry at Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which looks a lot more like an act to reduce any involvement of Chinese manufacturers in the pivot to electric vehicles. Let's get amongst it. It's been quite the week for China's President Xi Jinping, starting off with high-level meetings in Beijing that effectively ended three years of zero COVID policy in mainland China, and then straight onto a plane to the capital of Saudi Arabia for some extremely high-profile Arab diplomacy that's much more than just a deal for oil with Saudi Arabia. 
I see much of the media narrative is focused on comparing Xi Jinping's reception from the Saudis with that given to US President Joe Biden, but frankly it's starting to look like a tabloid-style popularity contest of who gets to be friends with Mohammed bin Salman. The reality of what's happening here is a much bigger picture of China's extensive and growing relationship with the nations across the Middle East. This trip includes the very first Arab-China Summit for Cooperation and Development. It involves 14 leaders from across the Middle East. My colleagues Koala Shur and Jack Lau are covering these summits and all the deals being signed with Saudi Arabia. And you can read their reporting and analysis right now on scmp.com. But we are very happy to welcome Jack Lau to the microphone. Hello, Jack. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, Jack, I'll start by recapping the basic facts about this difference in relationships between the US and China with Saudi Arabia. Firstly, the US imports 5% of its oil from Saudi Arabia. China imports almost 20% of its oil from Saudi Arabia, second only to Russia. And Saudi Arabia is also a dialogue member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And it's this relationship you analysed in your piece published earlier this week, a curtain raiser piece, as we say in the business. Can you tell us a bit more about Saudi Arabia and its involvement in the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation? Certainly. So this trip by Xi to Gulf countries is certainly about the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, or the SEO, as we say, which is, I say, group, not alliance or anything like that, a group of countries where they can talk to each other where they can sign non-committal agreements on energy, economy, politics, security. So it's a very encompassing group of Eurasian countries. Currently, there are eight countries. That includes China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and more recently, India and Pakistan. So while the SEO is very encompassing, the wide range of members it has makes it difficult for any binding agreements to be had. Obviously, that is you know, being illustrated by India and Pakistan's inclusion, which are themselves rivals in the region. And they're rarely seen together, except, I think, on the cricket field. But to have them on any organisation is quite the accomplishment. Exactly. And there was a deal that these two countries would enter the SEO together, and that happened in 2017. And then we are now potentially seeing the inclusion of Iran and Saudi Arabia, also rivals in a similar sense of the word. Again, two countries who wouldn't really seem to agree on anything except to appear on the same football pitch together. Yeah, so Iran is further into the uh, membership process. Right now, it is an observer and trying to become a full member like India and Pakistan and others. And Saudi Arabia is further behind on the process. It is now a dialogue partner and then is trying to upgrade status to an observer. So it's a three-step process. And usually, if one country wants to become a full member from an observer, it takes about a year to enter into all the agreements that the SEO has agreed on. The SEO being a China-led organization, China is quite relaxed about who comes into the SEO. And its position has always been, you can always be an observer or a dialogue partner and see what attracts you to this organization. If you want to join, good. If you don't want to join, that's fair enough. So China has been you know, looking at expanding the SEO into the Middle East. And you, know, you have Iran being a potential member, Saudi. You also have Egypt and Qatar who are interested in becoming you know, part of the SEO and they are now dialogue partners. You know, it's fascinating you mentioned Qatar there because in our other podcast, Inside China, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we kind of 
really touched on just how much China has invested in Qatar in this World Cup. It has built stadiums, it's built public transport, it's delivered so much, and many of those workers are still there. That's a very interesting kind of development and really points to the suggestion that Xi Jinping is using this trip to really expand the SCO, the Shanghai Corporation Organization, into the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. And while this trip is partly about SEO, the mainstay of this trip is energy. And China is very reliant on energy from the Middle East. And of course, energy security is a great part of President Xi Jinping's national security strategy, being self-reliant and not reliant on you know global supply chains that might be unstable given the geopolitical rivalries right now. Well, can I just interrupt there and just say that's actually quite interesting. You talk about Saudi Arabia and Iran as energy partners for China, because as I said in my introduction, I think it's glossed over a lot just the full extent of China's reliance on Saudi Arabia for you know petroleum imports, all of those products. So what do we need to know about this particular summit and what Xi Jinping is doing to further this partnership with both Saudi Arabia and Iran? Well, Jared, even before the summit, today, which hasn't happened as a time of recording, Xi Jinping has met with a lot of business partners and signed a lot of MOUs, this Memorandum of Understanding. And that includes, you know, 34 deals on energy and investments, which my colleague Koala Xie has written about. And those deals, we don't really have the details of yet. But then previously, it was reported that there were 20 agreements with total value of 29.26 billion US dollars worth of you know, contracts and agreements being made. So it's a huge sum. And most of those, I assume, about energy. And of course, I find myself in this position in this podcast of being in the wrong time zone at the right time. There's a lot going on that we're going to catch up on, but there's a sort of big announcement involving a particular telecommunications company we're familiar with from China with Saudi Arabia. So one of the deals that China signed on Xi's trip was with Huawei. Huawei Technology Co., which has been pursued by U.S. sanctions. We don't really know the details of the Huawei deal yet, but we know that the company has huge presence in the Gulf, developing 5G networks and smart cities. And I think that is going to concern the U.S. and the West a little bit because China is growing its technological footprint in the region. And obviously, the West has opted for alternative providers of 5G technology like Ericsson in Scandinavia. And that's quite interesting because, you know, the US has enlisted Australia, Canada, UK in its sanctions against Huawei. And it really looks like that Huawei is just moving to other parts of the world to continue its development. Let me turn to this report you did about how these summits have really helped to bring to light the massive growth of China's arms manufacturers and China's arms exports to the world. Again, I'll just give this context in that the US has sold a huge amount of arms to Saudi Arabia. And I think just recently there was that story in August that the Biden administration sold $3 billion US dollars worth of Patriot missiles to Saudi Arabia. But then we've just seen the announcement that China has announced something in the, in the vicinity of $4 billion worth of Chinese-made military drones to be sold to Saudi Arabia. Again, this has brought to light the great expansion of China's arms exports. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, and going back to the SEO, one of the concerns that many people have with the SEO is that it might turn into an Eastern NATO, which I think is a bit overstated. But 
it does show the concern over how China is now entering the Gulf region and potentially disrupting the traditional relationship between Gulf states and the U.S., whereby the Gulf states would provide oil and other energy sources to the U.S., and the U.S. would provide security, as we've seen in the Gulf War in the early 90s. So with China selling its arms, particularly drones, which it's become known for in the arms trade world, China is expanding its clients to the Middle East And according to a report published on Monday this week, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or we call CIPRI, said eight Chinese defense companies made the world's top 100 by sales and together accounted for 109 billion US dollars worth of arms last year. And that's about 6.5% increase from 2020. And that was the sales of 2021. So Norinco, which is a land system specialist, led the Chinese companies by selling 21.6 billion US dollars worth of military goods. So we're seeing a great deal of expansion of the Chinese military industry, selling particularly drones to states which do not really have an amicable relationship with the West, who would buy, for example, from Germany or the US. And Chinese arms are, of course, much cheaper and much more affordable to countries in the Middle East, in Northern Africa, and also Eastern Europe. Jack, I need to circle back and talk about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, and Iran's involvement because it's very interesting. Again, Xi Jinping could never have known that he would be landing at this summit, this first Arab-China summit, at the same time as what looks like the beginnings of a popular revolution in Iran. Iran is at this summit. Is there something to be said about Iran trying to get some legitimacy from the SEO, from its membership in this organization and association with Xi Jinping and China. Yep, Iran is trying to become a full member of the SEO. Late last month, Iran's parliament passed a bill to accede to the SEO, and it will take a bit of time for it to become a full member. But there are concerns in the West that by including Iran in the SEO, that China is encouraging or at least abetting to actions taken by the Iranian government. And that is especially controversial since there are nationwide protests in Iran now that was sparked by a young woman who was accused of not wearing her hijab properly. And she later died after police custody. And it raises the same question when China was trying to engage the Taliban in Afghanistan. What role does women's rights play in China's diplomacy when it's trying to reach out to societies, nations that are so vastly different in terms of social values. And in Afghanistan, women's right has been one of the issues that China has taken with the Taliban. But of course, that hasn't really stopped it from developing close ties, much closer than the West would ever develop with Afghanistan, especially given the war. And of course, Iran is somewhat isolated at the United Nations. This really looks like a almost a diplomatic lifeline that China is giving to Iran and its regime. Yes, Jared. So I've talked to experts from China and outside of China, Vela Patucci of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore, as well as Li Li Fan, the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences. So they've both said by including Iran in the SEO, China and other SEO members are trying to say Iran is not isolated on the international stage. And that gives Iran the legitimacy it wants as the West criticizes it for handling the protests. 
Now, once again, this podcast and our colleagues in the newsroom here at the SEMP find ourselves at the wrong end of the time zone at the end of the week. Jack Lau and Koala Sher are going to be reporting on the results of this historic Arab-China summit as the results come in later tonight, our time. You'll see them online at scmp.com. The best reporting, the best analysis. Jack Lau, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Kushbury Razdan is one of our correspondents in New York, but this week her attention has been split between Arizona and Washington, D.C. Kasper, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. A pleasure coming back. Before we turn to the concept of Arizona being the new home, or dare I say, one of the new homes for Taiwan's semiconductor giant TSMC, can I get you to pick up on two threads left after last week's episode? And that was from our colleagues Rob Delaney and Finbar Birmingham, who both pointed out the significant concerns, if not rising anger, being raised by Europe about the Biden administration's massive tax incentives for American manufacturers to try and get ahead of China in manufacturing electric vehicles. Now, you reported on this meeting in Maryland this week of the TTC, the US-EU Trade and Technology Council, where apparently these grievances were aired between a very high-level group of Europeans and uh, Americans. Can you tell us what happened there? Before we go to the meeting, something really important happened two, three days before that meeting. That was uh, U.S. President Joe Biden meeting French President Emmanuel Macron. And before the two leaders met, there was an, uh, you know, an air of tension uh, surrounding transatlantic relationship. Uh, there were talks about a trade war, a transatlantic trade war brewing up because of these massive subsidies, these, this massive amount of money to any manufacturer who's uh, planning to, to produce uh, electric vehicles in, in, in America. So when, when the two leaders met in D.C. last week, in a show of unity, in a show of you know, oldest ally Bon Homi, President Biden clearly said that when he was writing this massive piece of legislation, it is very normal for, for something like this to have glitches. And he was open to tweaks. He was open to tweaking this piece of legislation so that he can address all the concerns that his European allies have. And he specifically mentioned China. Uh, you know, we have been talking about this issue for a very long time. Uh, every expert says, oh, yes, when this law was passed, China was in mind, of course. But the, the Biden administration never said that. And the president himself never acknowledged that. And this was the first time on an international platform, um, you have, uh, you know, hundreds of of cameras at you, you're standing on the podium with the French president and you say that when we were passing this law, we had China in mind. We wanted to curb China's leverage on critical minerals industry and we did not want to exclude our allies in Europe 
so there was this sort of understanding that we saw that the two leaders had reached. A few days later, we had the Trade and Technology Council meeting between European leaders and the U.S. delegation, which was led by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimundo, and uh, the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. And when these leaders came onto the stage to speak to the press, IRA, of course, was on agenda. It was one of the top issues that was supposed to be discussed. And it came out to be that that they have decided to go on their own way. They have decided that they will go their own ways when it comes to industrial policy, but they will try to align these policies uh, at the same time. Like we saw in the CHIPS Act, the EU and the US both have uh, you know, passed their own versions of the CHIPS Act, where they're trying to rebuild supply chain resilience when it comes to semiconductors and kind of isolate China out of the supply chains when it comes to not just semiconductors, but other things as well, but specifically to semiconductors when, when it comes to this act. So we are seeing this kind of alignment in overall policy. The president of the European Commission, uh, you know, just a day before the meeting said that we need to have our own subsidies. We need to give out our own money to our own manufacturers so that the disbalance that has been created by the Biden administration's policies, specifically about the IRA subsidies, can be fixed so that our, our manufacturers are not hurt in the process while the Biden administration is trying to boost and reinvigorate uh, you know, their own manufacturing in, in North America. So clearly, the, the two sides have decided to do their own thing while also aligning their overall policy when it comes to subsidies, subsidies and industrial policy. But this sounds very interesting, Kushbu. It sounds like they're kind of agreeing to go their own way. And I can't help but think that, you know, just before we spoke tonight, I researched the fact that, you know, there's 130 car manufacturing plants in Europe. And I'm just guessing there's a lot more Porsches, BMWs and Mercedes-Benz being sold in mainland China uh, than there are say Ford or GM. So, you know, I was just thinking about what I said to Rob Delaney last week about how both the novelty of seeing electric Tesla vehicles on the road is sort of faded now. And China's electric car manufacturing market is going great guns. And of course, here in Hong Kong, we're starting to see electric Volvos, electric Porsches on the streets. It's these types of cars that are going to be cut out of what looks like a very American first policy. See, the supply chains are so complex. There is one electric vehicle. It has so many components, and that one component has so many subcomponents, and those subcomponents also have components. So where these small components are coming from, it's very difficult to gauge. It's very difficult for, for an electric vehicle manufacturer to know where each of this component is coming from. So when we say uh, America first or, you know, buy American or everything, at least some, uh, you know, portion of that EV should be assembled or manufactured in America, there is absolutely no way that a an EV manufacturer could be 100% sure that he's he's 100% in compliance with the law because these small components, these small ingredients of an electric vehicle, they're coming from all over the world, including China. Even if you say that these, some of these components are coming from South Korea or Japan, where is South Korea and Japan taking it from? There are small components that are also coming. These are critical minerals that are coming from China. It's just not possible. And exactly what happened in Arizona yesterday. So when the TSMC uh, founder took the stage, he had said this many times before that the competitive cost 
of manufacturing, operating, planning, everything, everything combined. It's not just about manufacturing. There are other stages to it. So everything combined, if you compare the cost of operating in the US, vis-a-vis operating in Taiwan or any other Asian nation, the difference is huge. So what it what happens that when you stick to your American, buy American policy or made in America policy, the prices of everything, not just electric vehicles, everything that uses a semiconductor from phones to iPhones to MacBooks, everything will get expensive. So this whole idea of making America and doing everything domestically is not feasible. All experts, analysts that I speak to, everyone says that it is impossible. Morris Chang of TSMC said it's impossible. It's futile. It's a futile exercise to try to make everything American. What I think Biden is trying to do is reduce the reliance. So let's get to Arizona. And as you mentioned, Arizona this week, very big story. And it's interesting you mentioned Morris Chang, the founder of TSMC, the world's premier semiconductor company. I note that you quoted Morris Chang in your story as saying that the idea of making semiconductors in the US was quote, a wasteful, expensive exercise in futility. This week, he seems to have changed his tune, along with the current chairman of TSMC, Mark Liu, who was there as well, who said back in June that, quote, the United States lacked the rich ecosystem of suppliers and large pool of skilled workers. Can you tell us about this meeting? Because again, this was a very heavy-hitting kind of photo opportunity. You've got both these very senior members from Taiwan's TSMC. There was Tim Cook from Apple there as well, and Joe Biden. What happened there? Uh, President Biden seems to be in election mode. It was a 2024 election mode kind of an atmosphere when it came to the Democrats, the the, the Biden administration. But most importantly, uh, Morris Chang, just minutes after President Biden finished his speech uh, declaring that manufacturing was back in America, uh, Morris Chang said something on the lines that uh, globalization is dead. And if somebody believes that it's going to come back, that person is wrong. The whole atmosphere was about bringing manufacturing back to America. American manufacturing is back. Uh, TSMC is here to stay, despite the challenges that TSMC has been raising with the Biden administration. Just last month, in a letter to the Commerce Department, the company said that they are having issues with costs and skilled labor, skilled engineers. TSMC was showing that they are moving ahead with their plans when it comes to expanding in the United States, despite all these challenges. Challenges, but found when the iconic founder of, of such a great company, which is the world's largest manufacturer of, of advanced ships, says that globalization is dead, it is clearly uh, clearly an indication of what the company really feels about uh, you know these laws that are being kind of protectionist you know where where everything has to be made in america everything has to be sourced domestically uh, they're trying to isolate asian not just china but asian countries as well south korea japan these countries are unhappy with with the inflation reduction act as well I'm compelled to think of our colleague from mainland China, Che Pan, who's a specialist on reporting on the semiconductor industry. A couple of months ago, he was on the Inside China podcast talking about the fact that the actual work rate, the hours worked by the engineers in Taiwan at TSMC actually scared the hell out of some Americans to come to visit them. There's a very good reason why semiconductors are built in Taiwan, notwithstanding the actual history of TSMC. If I remember correctly from the lesson taught to me by Joe Sin, one of our, our tech desk editor, 
The very reason why they're in Taiwan is because no one wanted to fund that company back in the US, back in its very beginning. I'm also compelled to remember that America's software industry is really built upon Indian software engineers who've moved to the US. So when we say made in America, it's that idea of America we're seeing, you know, the Indian software engineers, and now it will be Taiwanese semiconductor engineers coming in and building this stuff for Apple. And just on that, Kushbrew, is there any specific information you know about who was staffing these factories? And in fact, you know, Mark Lou also announced they'll be building a second fabricating plant in Arizona. Who's going to work there? So according to President Biden, he promised in his speech that these factories are going to create at least more than 10,000 jobs, uh, good paying jobs. But as I mentioned before, that TSMC has been uh, voicing its uh, concerns regarding a shortage of skilled engineers in America when it comes to semiconductors. And if you look at the figures, uh, more than 40 percent of semiconductor engineers in America are foreign born. So it's it's not that you set up a factory today and tomorrow you have the skilled labor to, to work at it. You need time and you need, uh, you know, good education to, to build that workforce. And uh, the IRA comes into effect in January. The factory is supposed to st- uh, go online in 2024. So they don't have much time to, to build this army of labor force if you really want to manufacture and create a, a semiconductor hub in America. So a shortage of skilled labor uh, the costs, um, the environmental concerns regarding semiconductors, these are major obstacles. And of course, I'm compelled to remember that we are yet to see this Taiwan Act, this this huge bill is yet to go through both houses of the Congress. Very interesting times ahead in January. Koshbri Razdan, thank you very much for your time. We'll look for your reports and analysis on scmp.com. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's all for this second Friday in December as we rush headlong into the Christmas season. Incidentally, it was on this day two years ago that the United Arab Emirates became the first country to authorise China's Sinopharm vaccine for general use against COVID-19. Don't forget to get hold of our Inside China podcast where we unpack what's happening in mainland China as the zero COVID policy is dismantled. This just might be our second to last podcast for the year, so let me say right now a big thank you kindly. Thank you for listening to us each week. We got our Spotify wrapped results back and I must say it was a pleasure to find that you put us in the top 5% of podcasts shared globally. And there's a very good chance you're listening to us in the USA, Australia, Canada, Malaysia, the United Kingdom, Germany or right here in Hong Kong. But we see you Singapore, India, Switzerland, Italy, France and Indonesia and everywhere else. Thank you kindly. Don't forget the latest news, updates and analysis can be found at scmp.com. Find us on the increasingly unstable platform known as Twitter, at SCMP News and at SCMP Economy. And if you know how the hell Mastodon works, find me at J underscore Watt. Have a great weekend. Bye for now. Bye.